Well, good morning again, and happy Mother's Day. Okay, kids, kids, you're going to have to ask your grandparents about this, okay? But when we were your age growing up, there was this TV program, and there were two heroes who were always in a predicament, always. And the TV announcer would come on and go, is this the end of our dynamic duo? Will this be it? Will they escape the clutches of the penguin or Riddler? Tune in tomorrow, same bat time, same bat channel. This is a storytelling device that we call a cliffhanger. And we still do it today. I know some of you are watching uh, Curse of Oak Island, and that's next time on the Curse of Oak Island. Will they find the treasure, or will they just find another oxen shoe? It must be an important clue to who is here. Uh, movies are even doing it, right? I mean, it's not like a Hallmark movie, which you know is going to end in two hours. There's an hour and 45-minute introduction. There's a problem between the man and the woman. In the last 15 minutes, they get it resolved, and there's a kiss at the end, and everybody goes home nice and happy. But think of the trilogies. The, the greatest cliffhanger, maybe, our hero is grasping on to an antenna above this chasm known as Cloud City. He's desperately hanging on, and the villain hands out his hand and goes, Luke, I am your father. What a cliffhanger. And you have to wait three years to get it resolved. Now you can just binge watch and see it all, right? So I know that you have been waiting ever since I did part one of Psalm 22 because it was a cliffhanger, and you've been waiting that whole time for me to finish. Okay, no, I'm sorry. Well, I have, so let's now turn to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, and I'll be concentrating on uh, the second half, verses 19 to 31, where we'll pick up our story. Psalm 22, verses 19 through 31. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation, my vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. Let's pray. 
Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open the eyes of our heart to see that which you want us to see, the preciousness of this passage, the truths that are in it, but more importantly, that it might impact our lives and transform us in how you want to use it. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before getting into the text, uh, I, I want to cover a few Bible study principles that I follow when dealing especially with the Old Testament and especially prophecies. And I hope that you can use them in your study and, and employ them. And for those who do, just good reminders uh, to keep in mind. So number one, as we get it, before we get into the text, prophecies in the Old Testament were not meant to be very clear to those alive then and even to the disciples. God did not tell us all at once from the very beginning what his plan was, right? He, did, he hasn't laid it out. Uh, hey, Jesus is coming. He's going to die for you. He's going to rise again. We're going to de- defeat death and you just hold on. We're going to do it. He started in Genesis and then he added little details throughout all the uh, centuries Now, one reason you have to understand that he did it this way is is in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 6. It says, none of the rulers of this age understood this. If they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. In other words, the rulers, Satan and the rulers of this age, they didn't know what God's plan was. Because if they knew what his plan was, Satan wouldn't have had Jesus killed. Satan thought he was thwarting God's plan, but he wasn't. And so when we approach these uh, Old Testament texts, and especially prophecies, we have to remember um, it's, it's not clear. Even, even the prophecies of the future aren't clear, right? So we need to come humbly. Let's come humbly before these texts as we, as we look at them. Number two, second principle, there's a time separation When looking at the scriptures, remember that a prophecy actually may be about two events. Chris has used this illustration. I know you've heard it. You know, when you're looking at the mountains, you can see the different mountain ranges and the peaks, but what you don't see in between are the big valleys. You don't know how much time it takes to get from one peak to the other. And so uh, even in uh, Jesus' life, remember when he was reading from the book of Isaiah, he read what we call a half a verse, not even a full verse in, in the way we've got it laid out. Um, and we'll talk about that here in a second. But these prophecies could be fulfilled at different times. We don't see that time separation necessarily in between. And we're going to see that here in Psalm 22. Okay, number three. When you're dealing with the Old Testament prophecies and Old Testament scriptures, you are on better footing and more solid ground when the New Testament uh, references the old and helps you interpret the old. For instance, um, let's say we were using Jonah and and the story of the fish, and someone were to come up and say, uh, what is your fish that's eating you, you know, trying to spiritualize this this passage. Uh, One that they like to use often is David and Goliath. Who's your Goliath that you're going to slay? Well, we've got to be careful. 
But when Christ used Jonah and said, just like Jonah, I will be in the earth three days and three nights, just as Jonah was in the fish for three days and three nights, then we are on more solid ground in using that illustration, right? Because Jesus used it. And we saw that in the first part of Psalm 22, and we'll see that here in a second, when Matthew referenced this psalm in his writing of the account of the crucifixion of Jesus. So that's number three. Um, Number four. I'm saving that one for later. A mini cliffhanger, if you will, okay? All right, so given these principles, we need to do a refresher of part one. Just like those shows would say, when we left our dynamic duo, you know, they got to do a little recap. So let's look at Psalm 22. And uh, remember, Psalm 22 comes in two parts. Both parts are prophecies of Jesus, which to us on this side of the cross and by the uh, power of the Holy Spirit, we're able to see fairly clearly. But to the first century Jews and even today's Orthodox Jews, this prophecy was and is still a mystery. And the first part of Psalm 22 is familiar to you because, or to us, because Jesus used this on the cross and pointed the onlookers to this passage by quoting the opening lines, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So remember, before there were chapters and verses which came in about the 1500s, Uh, The Jews would refer to a psalm by its first opening words. These would have been uh, something like this. There would have been the Lord is my shepherd song. Remember, these are songs. So there's the Lord is my shepherd song, and they would have learned it as a song. Or there would have been, O Lord, O Lord, how majestic is your name song. This uh, This psalm is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me song. So when we looked at it uh, before, uh, through verses 1 through 18, we compared this to Matthew's account of the crucifixion. So we saw how the Pharisees used verses 7 and 8. If you look down there, the Pharisees were sneering at the Lord. They uh, separate with the lip. They wagged their head, saying, commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. So, so the Pharisees used this psalm to mock Jesus on the cross. And then the Lord responded by saying, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he's, he's telling the Pharisees, hey, you're using this verse against me, but this chapter is about me. This prophecy is about me. So uh, we, we kept on reading down. We see in... Uh, Verse 14, you see a clear picture of the crucifixion in 14 and 15. I am poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a pot shard, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. Clearly, we see that picture of the crucifixion there. And then in verse 18, we see that they even divided the garments and cast lots for them, exactly as Matthew recorded for us in his account and a great example of principle number three, right? When the New Testament author refers to an Old Testament, we know that 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 can be applied there. So Matthew used Psalm 22. He related it to Jesus' crucifixion. 
So we can be sure that when we read it, that's what it was about. But here's the cliffhanger. Ready for the cliffhanger? The hero of the story is dead. Look at verse 15. You lay me in the dust of death. Isaiah 53 prophesied that God's servant was to be cut off from the land of the living. So dead was he in Isaiah that he was assigned a grave with the wicked, but he ended up in a rich man's tomb. He is dead and buried. That's a cliffhanger. Is this the end? So let's look at the rest of the chapter. Verses 19 through 24. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Okay, we need, it's a little difficult passage to understand. We need to get our players straight because it gets a little confusing with the I's and the U's and the yours. And so the first question we need to ask is, who is this I in verse 22? Um, I will tell of your name. And principle number three comes into play here because we have a New Testament author who refers to this. Turn to Hebrews 2. Turn to Hebrews 2. Hebrews 2, verses 10 through 14. And this is what the, the New Testament author says. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies... Okay, so who is this he? It's Jesus. Jesus is... is the one by whom all things exist. He's the one who brings many sons to glory. He's the founder of our salvation. He is the one who perfected through suffering. So Jesus, this is referring to Jesus. It continues, um, and those who are sanctified all have one source. This is why he, Jesus, is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. That phrase there in Hebrews is exactly what is in Psalm 22. You see that? Turn back to Psalm 22. You'll see that right there in, um, in that passage. Verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers, to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will praise you. So that New Testament author tells us that Psalm 22 is referring to Jesus. So the I in verse 22 is Jesus. Okay, good. Uh-oh. That means there's a problem. Uh, and a question that uh, arises real quick. Um, how is it the servant 
who is dead, remember? He's dead in verse 15. And seemingly forsaken, how can he say, you have saved me from the horns of the wild oxen? There in verse 20. Did God forsake Jesus? This takes us back to the first verse of the psalm, remember? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, What was Jesus really saying? Or was he forsaken at the cross? Um, now, I've, I've kind of always believed, and you've probably heard this too, right? That when Jesus was on the cross and it turned dark, that God was hiding his face and turning his back on Jesus. And, and some people think that because um, there's a verse, Habakkuk 1.13, that says, Your eyes are too pure, O Lord, to look at evil. You cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So they think that God couldn't look upon Jesus on the cross because Jesus became the sin for us. But there's a problem with that. Um, God sees everything and knows everything. He daily looks on the earth, and what do you think he sees? Sin. God looked upon Satan when Satan came up to accuse Job, right? Satan even stood in God's presence. Jesus came to seek and save sinners. Jesus took on and carried away our sin. Um, sin is not so powerful that it can separate the Trinity. So, um, that means the Trinity experienced the cross together. So verse 1, then, how do we read that? It's, it's more of a plea. It's not a, it's not a statement. It's a, it's a plea. My God, my God, please, uh, it seems like you have forsaken me. Uh, the pleas continue there in verse 19, right? Don't be far off. Come quickly. Save me. And we see in verse 24 that Rick, indeed God has not despised or abandoned, abhorred the afflicted of the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Okay, that means God did not turn his back or hide his face or forsake Jesus on the cross. Our God, remember, is a God who sees everything. The psalmist says in 139, this is a fairly long psalm. I'm going to read a portion. O Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I free from your presence? If I send to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. God was present at the cross, and I, and I think that he saw... And, he saw everything on that day. One of my favorite verses in Isaiah 53 is verse 11. It goes like this. The anguish of his soul he sees and is satisfied. Now, let me explain that a little bit. 
the anguish of Jesus, the anguish of Jesus' soul, God saw and was satisfied. Remember, um, God's righteous and holy wrath against sin was satisfied when he saw the anguish of Jesus on the cross. We sing that song. um, While on the cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. God was not far off. He was there at the cross. He saw the anguish of Jesus. Jesus was not forsaken there at the cross. Okay. Um, Sure seems like it. I mean, he's dead. Earlier in the psalm, we see that the servant was encircled by dogs, verse 16. Bulls surrounded him in verse 12. And lions opened their mouth, roaring at him in verse 13. How can the servant say that you have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen, or that he was delivered from the sword and the power of the dog and saved from the mouth of the lions if he's dead? All right, I have three answers, I think. First, the sword, dogs, and bulls, and lions didn't kill Jesus. In the earlier verses, what we saw is that they were encircling him. They were encircling him. If, if a lion is encircling you and roaring, you're safe. It's the quiet lion you have to worry about, not the roaring lion. If a bull is encircling you, he's not charging you. So it, it wasn't the, the bulls and the dogs that killed Jesus. Um, Christ laid down his own life of his own accord. Satan used men like Judas, but Satan's power didn't put Christ to death. Christ willingly came to pay the just and deserved fine of our rebellion against God. Philippians 2, verse 6 through 8, who, this is Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count the equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. Or you can look at John chapter 10, verses 17 and 18. It says, for this reason, the father loves me because I laid down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down from my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I received from my father. So although the servant is dead, he's not forsaken. It was not the power of anyone else, but God's own will and plan. So in one sense, the servant is delivered from others, but he's accomplishing what he set out to do. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord for us. A second thought is that although Jesus is physically dead, he did not die spiritually, right? There are two deaths. You have to remember, there are two deaths. There's a physical death and there's a spiritual death. 
For those in Christ, we will not see that second death, but rather we have eternal life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 11 says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Revelation chapter 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God in Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Luke 12, 4, Jesus telling him, I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more they could do, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Jesus wasn't forsaken. He never died spiritually. Jesus didn't experience that second death, and he was spiritually alive. But that's not quite enough, is it? See, the third and most glorious answer to this is that the servant, having been dead, is really, really, who is really, really, really dead, he's now alive. Right? You guys know it. He's alive. Look at verse 22 through 24. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. And all you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. Notice verse 28, Sus. I will tell your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Can a dead person do that? Nope. Only a live person can stand among others. And only a live person can talk. Only a live person can praise. Only, this is the resurrection, folks. In Psalm 22, we see the death of Jesus on the cross, but now we're seeing a resurrection. He's alive. Who are these brothers? This will help us understand that. Um, Jesus uses this term brothers in Matthew 28, verse 10. Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers. And this is really the only time he uses this phrase. Uh, to go to Galilee, and they will see me. Now, I'm asking you to remember all the way back when I preached before. Now, I'm asking you to remember when the missionary Ron Mitten was here uh, from Ukraine. Remember, he talked about uh, Christ appearing before the 500, and he thinks that was all at once in Galilee, a small congregation. And in Mark 3, uh, verse 12 uh, when Jesus was told his mother and brothers were outside, he said, here are my um, mother and my brothers. Or in Luke twenty-two thirty-two, 32, Peter is told to strengthen your brothers, though he had denied Christ. We are his brothers and sisters. But in this case, that small congregation of 500, Christ having been risen from the dead, he went and he praised God there for, for delivering him. But this is precious, isn't it? Think of this. Jesus calls us brothers and sisters. The ruler of the universe who came to save us now calls us his brothers and sisters. Adopted into a kingdom, which I refer you back to Pastor Chris's sermon two weeks ago. We are part of a kingdom. One more question then is, uh, we, we know who the I is, we know who the, the brethren are. One more question, who is the you and yours of verse 22? You who fear the Lord, uh, verse 23 helps us out, right? You who fear the Lord, praise him. Jesus is proclaiming the praise of the Father and telling us, the congregation, 
to praise God. So you and yours is God. I'm going to keep that straight here for a second because it's going to come back in the next few verses. Um, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. For he, God, has not hidden his face from him, Jesus, but has heard when he, that's Jesus, cried to him. Um, we, we don't have time to go in it to, today. Um, I know this says the people of Israel praise the Lord, but in the New Testament, the, Paul makes the argument that if you are in Christ, you are now part of the true Israel, part of Abraham. Remember, we're grafted into, uh, into the vine. So this verse isn't only for Israel to praise him, but for us as his adopted children as well. All right. So verses 19 through 21, we see a resurrection. So the first part of the chapter is about the crucifixion. The second, this part here is about a resurrection. And we see that God did help Jesus. He was not far off. God delivered Christ's soul from the second death. He did not allow the dogs, the lions, the bulls to be the ones to kill Jesus because Jesus laid down his life willingly for us. And we see that he is alive, physically alive. He's talking to his brothers. He's in the midst of that congregation. And as a result, then, you should fear the Lord and praise him. And we should fear the Lord and praise him. All right, so if verses 19 through 22, or 21 are, uh, excuse me, 21 through 24, 19 through 24, are resurrection, let's look at verses 25 and 26. Verses 25 and 26. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. Okay, the scene is now shifting. We are now in the midst of not a congregation, but in the midst of a great congregation. So see the difference there from the previous verses? This is, the scene has shifted. Also notice this, uh, the praise also shifts. This is why we have to get the U's and the I's and yours all straight. The praise in verse 19 through 24 is Jesus praising the Father. But now look at this verse, and it's from you. Who's the you? God. So from God, you being God the Father, God is praising Jesus. From you comes my praise. The my in this case is Jesus. So God is now praising Jesus in the great assembly. Um, where would this happen? If our scene is shifted, where might this happen? I think right now this scene is taking place in heaven. And just a little aside, this also shows the Trinity in the Old Testament. God is praising Jesus. God is worshiping Jesus. If God were to worship something that wasn't God, that would be idolatry. But God the Father is worshiping Jesus the Son. Okay, why is this seen in heaven? First of all, because we're amongst a great congregation. This isn't just a little congregation back in verse 22. This is a great congregation. John in the book of Revelation records it this way, then... This is what he says. Then I looked, 
And I heard around the throne and living creatures and elders and the voice of many angels numbering myriads and myriads and thousands and thousands saying with one voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and in the sea. Who's being praised here? Jesus, the Lamb, the one who is worthy. Just like we see here in the psalm, the, the praise has shifted. Um, notice, too, that uh, this is a place where our hearts will live forever, verse 26. And this is our destiny in heaven, isn't it? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The vows and promises that the servant is carrying out reminds me of John 14, 2 and 3 when Jesus gave, gave a vow and a promise. Do you remember his promise there? He said, in my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. So if I go and prepare a place for you, which is where? Heaven. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. Um, another reason why I think this might be heaven. Um, what else is happening in these verses? The afflicted will eat, in uh, verse 26, the afflicted will eat and be satisfied. Uh, two possibilities here. And, the, and, and this, is too, I hope is precious to you. The first is that Jesus is our complete satisfaction. Remember, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Jesus is the living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Only eating, and if you eat of him, if you eat of Jesus, I understand, this caused a lot of people to leave Jesus at this point when he said, hey, you've got to eat, you eat the bread of my, uh, my life, drink of me. But if you do, you'll be satisfied forever. You will never, never not be satisfied. You will never thirst again. Jesus is that satisfaction that we will experience and enjoy in heaven. There's a second possibility. Um, this could be talking about the marriage supper of the Lamb uh, in Revelation 19.9. But only in Christ and His salvation will you ever be satisfied. Nothing else will satisfy you. Remember, He is the bread of life. He's the everlasting water. If you eat of Him, you'll be satisfied. If you drink of Him, you will never thirst again. So that's why I think all these things point to me that now this other little prophecy in the psalm, remember, we don't know the separation time between these, but I think we're getting a different picture now. We're getting a picture of heaven. So we've seen the cross, the resurrection, and now a picture of heaven. Um, so finally, let's look at verses 27 through 31. 
All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship you before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. There's coming a day when the ends of the earth will turn to the Lord. He will rule over the nations, and the nations will come to worship him. This sounds an awful lot like the millennial kingdom to me. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 31, Behold, the days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their heart. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each one his, his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least to them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Or how about Philippians 2, verse 9? We know that Jesus did not grasp equality with God but he came down, and at the end of that passage, we know that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Psalm 96, 7 through 9, ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength, ascribe to the Lord glory to his name, bring an offering and come into his course, worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness, tremble before him all the earth. We could go on and on. Psalm 2 talks about Jesus being king. Uh, we have all the passages of the t- prophecies of the coming kingdom. Um, it, it's, it, this, I think, is a picture of that kingdom again. So we have the, we have the crucifixion, the resurrection, the scene in heaven, a millennial kingdom. Okay, kids, number four, I finally got it. This is the cliffhanger, number four, principle number four, right? The Word of God is amazing, isn't it? By digging into this one psalm, we see the prophecies of a crucifixion, the resurrection, heaven, and eventually a new kingdom where Jesus reigns. I could see how this passage to the spiritually blind could be confusing and ununderstandable, but with the Holy Spirit and being on this side of the cross, this is a marvelous truth to behold, isn't it? It's amazing. Well, here's a little picture. I've got a few minutes here. I didn't mention this last time, but if you look up in, in Psalm 22, verse 6, it says, but I am a worm and not a man. This is what's amazing. As I did more research, I didn't have this in the first thing. There are two types of worms in Israel. Liam, do you know there are two types of worms in Israel? I didn't. There's a normal earthworm, and then there's a scarlet worm. And this is, 
this is the term here in Psalm uh, 22 verse 6. He's using the term for that scarlet worm that they have in Israel. The scarlet worm comes up, and when it's going to lay its eggs, it comes up out of the ground, and it attaches itself to a tree. And it explodes. And it stains that tree red. When it attaches itself to that tree, we think you can't pull it off. When Jesus said, I am a worm, he's saying, I'm like that worm, that scarlet worm that's going to go to a tree, and I'm going to stain it red, and nothing's going to take me down off that cross. Isn't that amazing? That is so cool. We have an amazing word right here because we have an amazing God. He's pointing it out to us, right? We should be amazed. I'm amazed at this. Uh, we get to carry it around. We get to read it in our own language. The disciples, hey, remember, the disciples didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a cell phone that they could carry around them and look up on their phone. Right, Claire, right? They, they didn't have a cell phone. They could just pull up the Scripture. If they wanted to go see the Scripture, they had to go to the synagogue, and they had to go to the front. And what did they do? They pulled out these huge scrolls right? They, they, we have it in our own language. And it's amazing because our God is amazing. The Word is living and active. It's breathed and pro- by God. It's profitable for training, correction. Life lived by this book, by this Word, usually works. In it, we find hope and joy and peace. It's the only text that's so consistent in its message yet written over 1,500 years by many authors. There's no other text like it. Not Muhammad, the Quran, not Joseph Smith. Nothing compared to this. There's no other text that contains eyewitnesses, counts of miracles and prophecies like we just looked at that come 100% accurate. In fact... God challenges all the other so-called gods with this test. Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me there is no God. Who is like me? Let Him proclaim it. Let Him declare and set before me, since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come. Okay, other gods, you prophesy what is to come and what will happen. They can't, can they? Fear not, nor be afraid. I have not told you, uh, have I not told you from old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know of it. I know of not of any. These prophecies that we just read become the evidence and the conviction of the things not seen. It's the grounding of our faith, knowing that God has promised us in the future that eternal life, the prophecies that he's told us about the future are going to come true because he's done it over and over and over again.